Five. Uh, some technical issues. Everything okay? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Power outage here. You have stormy weather there? No, I think it's just that heat stuff. It's 130 degrees outside and people won't turn their ACs off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we um you have your phone on you? Yes. We can you look up uh Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper and just like find a good image of it. So over the weekend we did some um furniture refinishing for my daughter and it was hot outside so we came in Saturday night and we're just kind of tired and turned on a movie. I was scrolling through and I found the Da Vinci Code uh, from Dan Brown, which I am familiar with, but my wife wasn't. And there's a list of movies that seem interesting after Awakening and um, or when I scroll through movie titles, I kind of have this thing where I'm like, oh, that'll be interesting. And we started watching it. It goes into the sacred feminine, which is so weird because there's some kind of like sacred feminine day that's coming up at the end of the week. I think it's Friday. So there's like some weird synchronicity there. And the movie, I mean, I had I know, knew this before, but it reminded me the the way that we talk about Christ and the way that we kind of um, understand Christ in terms of presence and not necessarily through the dogma of the church. But the Da Vinci Code kind of reveals that, I mean, and of course, like we weren't the first ones to do that. And there's been people trying to expose Christ Christ in a different light all along. And Da Vinci is one of those people. So the sacred feminine is and, and spoiler alert, I mean this movie is from the, the early 2000s so I mean I think everybody kind of if you're interested would uh, remember the concept but the whole idea is Jesus has a bloodline that might be actually still active today. And obviously Jesus died. So the bloodline is transferred through females, kind of like a backwards bloodline. Normally it's a patriarchal bloodline, but this would be a female bloodline that goes back. And so there would be like, the blood of Jesus, like in society today from this bloodline. The Da Vinci, the last supper. Are you looking at it? Yep. So the last supper is what communion is based on. So communion would be, you know, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the, the church ritual 
in order um, to receive the sacraments of Christ. But look at that. Look at Da Vinci's Last Supper painting. And where are the cups? Do you see any cup? Um, let's see. They're like little shot glasses. Yeah, and no cup. So the cup would be the cup that he serves the wine in the Last Supper. That would be the Holy Grail. That would be like the mythological artifact that would have been, been called the Holy Grail. And it's been depicted in like Indiana Jones and stuff. So like that would be the cup that has, you know, mystically is supposed to have powers in terms of like healing. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the, if you look at the painting, there is no cup. There's no chalice, like a wine glass. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have the 12 disciples and there's, a symbol for male and there's a symbol for female, um, a, um, human symbol. So nothing that belongs to any particular culture, but it's for males. It looks like the top of a mountain and like the military uses it in their bars. So like the amount of bars you have on your stripes, like that's the symbol for male, but then the symbol for females, the exact opposite of that. So it'd be like the mountain in reverse. So look at Jesus there in the middle and then the disciple on the left. You see how it makes that nice big V? Mm-hmm. So that's the symbol for female that you're looking at Da Vinci. It looks like he was trying to um, display that symbol kind of like right in the middle. So that is the Holy Grail right there. And then look to the the disciple to the left. Tell me, is that a man or is that a woman? To his left? To his left, yes. Looks like a woman, right? Well, there's one standing that definitely looks like a woman. There's one to the left that's questionable but could be a woman the the one that's sitting on his right so at at his right hand that's a woman looks like a woman on his right side is a woman yeah exactly and look so there's 12 disciples there so the 12th disciple is mary magdalene Mm -hmm. and then if you can imagine you have to kind of use your imagination for this, but if you took her and you could move her like in the painting on the other side, her shoulder lays perfectly on Jesus's shoulder to the left. You'd have to play with the image in order to pull that off. But the Da Vinci code, the movie goes through this very well. And it's demonstrating how Da Vinci was talking about Jesus in code. And this is in the 1400s. So 1400 years after Christ. Mm hmm. But you weren't allowed to question the church back then, so it, it had to be d- done like this through sy- symbolism and stuff. 
Yeah. But when I watched the movie, it just really kind of hit me that, oh, this has been going on with Christ ever since the beginning, where he's being claimed for the dogma of the church, but he represents so much more to so many more people. But it's been going on all along. It has been going on all, all along, and that's exactly what you would do uh, through symbolism. And now, that's why we talked about on the last podcast that we have started a massive awakening on a global scale because there's more freedoms in more places now. And this platform, other platforms, those seeds are going out. They're going out all over. Um, there's a, there's a lot of more people that do this than me and you. And technology has given us, like I said, 20 years ago, I mean, the thing to do was write, and I did some writing, but that was pretty much the only outlet that I had. But now, I mean, after you had an awakening, two and like what month later, we were up and running with a podcast, um, and able to broadcast it to whoever wants to listen all over the globe. That is insanity. Yeah, that's kind of why I told that story. So we're in the middle of this movie. So my wife ended up liking the movie. I mean, and if you like the concept that I just talked about, I mean, go watch The Da Vinci Code. I actually like the movie better because it does a better job of like displaying the painting as they're talking about it. Um, but we paused the movie because it was such a beautiful sunset and we were sitting out back. But as we were sitting out back, I was so intrigued about the history of Da Vinci and it goes into like the history of Constantine. So I was searching for like a podcast that was going to go specifically into the history of Constantine and specifically in, into the history of the early crusades. And so I think what I put in Google search was sacred feminine history podcasts. And from that, input into Google, I start scrolling down and then I see this podcast with an eye that looks like a spiritual podcast. And then I can also see the first episode is just scratching the surface. And then I look at the podcast name and it's uh dualistic unity. Correct. And I was just kind of blown away. I'm like, hold on, wait, just scratching the surface. Like it just seemed like it was like too much of a synchronistic event. And so I sent you the podcast link and then like Monday you sent me back and you were saying like, you're never going to believe this, but this is like two guys. One of them woke up in May and the other has been awake for 20 years. And it's, it sounds like exactly what we're doing. Well, yeah, from the first show, but I think they started like over a year ago. In relation to us, it was like May, yeah, two months prior. But we're listening to 
I think scratching the surface was like 14 months ago. So it's, we're, we're off as far as the times, but as far as the two months and the, yeah, it, it lined up and I opened that, I think you sent it to me on Friday or something. And we, we, I, I made a coffee run Saturday morning and I had clicked on it and, but I didn't listen to it Friday night. So when I got in the truck to, to drive off, it just automatically started playing. I think, I don't know if that's Spotify thing or what, but I, it just automatically, I, I didn't have any intentions to listen to a podcast. I didn't even had coffee yet. I was trying to wake up. Um, and so I ended up listening to the first 30 minutes of it. And then I texted you and I, and I came home and I told Patty and let her listen to a few sentences and yeah, it was just it was just odd. Some of the things they yeah, were talking, they were talking about. about ego and empathy and judgment. I mean, it was uh, Adam and, and Eve was yeah. in the, the very yeah. beginning. In the beginning, there was void, darkness. Oh yeah, yeah. So what what we're seeing is an avenue where people have to broadcast what. in times past leading up 2000 years, I mean, people were always fearful of, and that leads me to what I wanted to talk about, which was the true meaning of persecution. It's a perfect segue. Um, because along with everything being backwards, meanings of words start to all make sense. And I looked at all words backwards and persecution was one of the main words that we're just hitting on right now. Because when I grew up in a culture, in a religion type learned behavior, I thought persecution was, you know, you went to church and, you know, the person that didn't go to church, they, they like talked about you and laughed at you and said, oh, you go to church or whatever, like picking on you. In hindsight, me looking at that, I understand it's ego play on ego play. And I immediately, anyone who awakens immediately understands what true, well, maybe not the first day or two, but you immediately understand what persecution is because it's, if I could sum it up in a short one sentence, it's hating without a cause. It's, someone hating you just for the energy that you're bringing um presence has haters naturally and it, i mean jesus put it perfectly when he said they hated me first but he was making the point he's saying they'll hate you too but they hated me first he was trying to give comfort to the fact that, yes, it's going to seem weird that you can just take hate. And you were a perfect example of random hate. Like the angry woman that we talked about at the pool, that was just a random instance of random hate. But I think you've seen and know and experience once you have a certain light or a certain aura, you know, 
it's not the case for everyone, but it it will be hated just for no other for for no reason at all. The discovery of that was pretty cool for me because I, as I look back and think of what I thought persecution was, it was just not even close, not even in the ballpark, completely backwards. And it is one, it is, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. It is a hard definition for me to put into words because it's a lot of seeing, you know, seeing things, you know, seeing certain ways people act after you're awakened. So it's, there's many different levels. So it's very difficult to actually put that definition perfectly into words. Yeah, you probably have more experience with it than I do overall, but I do feel like I notice it in terms of, and I I don't even really do this a lot, but it's it's funny, like listening to that guy, Andrew, he's talking about, um, you know, just trying to talk about it, just trying to bring it up, just trying to put it out there. And... I mean, we've talked about it a lot and it puts you in the position of having to break through somebody and not very many people are like welcoming that process. So it kind of, in terms of like not having a reason for the hate, or not having a reason to feel the way that you do. But like when you're awake and you're with somebody and you can hear the ego and you want to try to push and pull on it. Like even if they didn't have a reason to hate, they do now because they want to guard against that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good way of looking at it too, because you want you, I mean, the defense of the ego, especially if you're being aggressive, and I say aggressive in a loving way, um, you're definitely going to get that inner defensive, angry energy coming back uh, if you're putting forth effort. But I've even seen it without any effort at all, just by presence alone. Just by merely being in a room. Um, and I too, I mean, I, I deal with a lot of people with my work to where there's many different personalities. I mean, I could go tomorrow and sit in a room with 20 minutes or sit in a room for 20 minutes with someone I've never met before and you know, because I'm trying to sell that account and I'm, I'm trying to see where their emotions are at and you can see those little agitations and you actually see people that are like, this person seems angry that I'm just in the room, um, type of thing. You know, who is, probably the best example of persecution that I've witnessed after waking up. That's has to be Osho. 
I mean, I remember watching Wild Wild Country and I mean, just thinking, and this is before I woke up, just thinking that I'm watching a documentary about a cult leader and watching that town and the persecution. And I remember like when I first saw it, like not having an issue with it. I mean, on the side of the town of Oregon and not to say that I'm like on one side or the other now, but you can see the persecution clearly in that documentary for sure. And then having the awakening and going back to Osho and in the documentary, I mean, you don't get to understand really too much about his message at all. Like that's hidden in the documentary. But if you go to his teachings and his um, books and his lectures or his sermons, I mean, that's, that's persecution. That's what that was. I mean, he's flowing with the truth of presence and the system around him is not tolerating it. Yeah. I think you just hit the nail on the head too. Cause when, whenever you were talking, certain people get to a level to where they get collective persecution and collective persecution of the likes of Osho or Jesus when you get to that level and you're, I mean, spiritual warfare at, I mean, I'm struggling to even put that into words because you're dealing with a war at that point. Osho and Jesus got to the point of a war, like beyond when you're taking love and truth to the masses at that level and you start to get collective persecution, which is only natural. Someone that's awakening looks at Jesus or Osho with such compassion and takes so much away from that because one, you know, it's not hard for them to withstand that type of persecution. But two, you see culture and belief systems and government for what they are. And they're collective bodies of ego reinforcement. And when those are threatened on a mass scale, they come together like an army of ants and collectively unite in their wrongness to try to take one man down. I mean, my God, it's just one man, right? It's just <laughs> one man. Doesn't it yeah, make wearing the point? robes and talking to a crowd. Yeah. Doesn't it make the point? I mean, it makes the point. I mean, you're talking truth. It's such a dangerous thing. And people see that person is such a danger to society that, it wakes up the collective ego. I bet he woke up a lot of people in jail. <laughs> I bet that wherever he went to jail, I bet that jailhouse was set ablaze 
with just spiritual enlightenment. I don't know if I ever said it on the program, but I feel like one of the biggest quotes that came from me ever was and I don't know if it's true. I mean, I don't have the numbers on this, but just me looking objectively at the world and the free people and looking at prisons and there's a lot of people in prison. There's more awake people in prison than there is outside of prison, in my opinion, or I think I put it this way. There's more free people in jail than there is free people outside of jail. Yeah. And yeah, because you can even take that to the next level and you can say death row. Death row would have even more awakened people than the regular jail population. Because acceptance is even more diligently forced upon them. Yeah. And then their time's up. So, and maybe that's why a lot of spiritual teachers go to prisons is because if you walk in there, the, your reception is probably through the charts. I mean, they don't have anything else to do, but listen to you. And if you have anything good to say and, and they, they start hearing you, I mean, they're, they're all in, they're all in. It's, it's like going to, but it's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things too, for someone to be awake in jail and for whatever reason, why they're in jail, have that peace of mind and being able to deal with whatever has happened to them thus whatever happened to them making them do something to someone else and them being able to unravel all that and not be resentful and be free inside of cement walls i mean it's kind of a it's kind of a beautiful thing for sure i've got a question for you So I don't know if, I don't think I've revealed on the podcast yet. I know that you are aware, but I suffered from sleep paralysis from a much younger age. So probably around 16 or 17 when it started. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily all that rare. One of the reasons I want to bring it up because I, I think it's relatable. I think it's, I don't want to say common, but I think uh, there definitely are a lot of people out there that deal with that. And early on, my reference point was, um, I just thought it was demonic. I just. I couldn't understand a presence there with me. I couldn't understand why I couldn't move. And I really couldn't understand the paralyzing nature of that fear. I mean, it's the, it's the complete fear overload. It's like, you can't talk. You can't cry out. It's, um, it's as if, you know, if there's a fear slider, I mean, somebody just slides it up to 11 and it's just overflowing. And, the sensation to me always was that whatever that entity is and my original processing of it, like I said, was kind of demonic. It's 
feeding on that fear. And uh, that always used to hit me as kind of like a vibration, like a heavy vibration in my in my torso. And I was kind of always afraid to look down and confront it. But I, there was a tangible feeling of vibration and like a frenzied nature to it. And it seemed to be in direct response to how afraid that I was. And there was obviously, I mean, no f- actual physical harm. And I dealt with it um, my entire life and it got a lot more sporadic. It wouldn't happen uh, quite as often. And after I had kids and, and I processed it, processed it enough over time, I kind of switched from my demonic understanding of it to something more just predatorial. Um, I always like imagine like a wolf. Like if you see like one of those really good pictures of like a wolf in nature, I mean, it just inspires a lot of fear, but it's just, it's predatorial nature. It's just, that's just what it is. It's a wolf. It's a predator. It feeds. Right. And so I got, a lot more comfortable with it over time. And the reason I bring it up is because now I've had two different episodes since awakening. And the transmutation process is automatic. And I mean, this thing that I used to think like outweighed me and had you know, the force to actually hold me down and paralyze. I mean, there's nothing like that anymore. It's almost just like a, uh, I feel like there's like a knock on the door and then there's just this energy that I'm not processing as fear anymore. It's just like a new source of energy. It's like, I have my energy. I'm laying down in bed and then there's like another source of energy. And it's like, where's this source of energy? Right. But it, there's nothing processing like fear. It's just not there. And it's almost switched to, I mean, I, if, if I had to, um, if I had to classify it, it's a good feeling. So my question to you is, um, Am I feeding on it now? No, I just think it isn't there anymore. Interesting. Because the, um, over time, I just started to realize that this thing understands fear better than I do. So it, it creates the event, which creates the reaction. And then the reaction is that thing's food. And so, but now it has like a localized, it has a source. So if it were to come back, it thinks it's going to get food again, right? Mm -hmm. But now the feeling is. It comes in, it tries to create 
the point that is supposed to create fear and now it doesn't create fear it creates something else so all the energy that it puts out to create fear it just loses i see what you're saying because you wouldn't be paralyzed if it wasn't back so it is there and it, and it's your reaction out the same. is completely different yeah and so as it sends out that energy it's just a complete energy loss to this thing because it's getting nothing in return. And so I would assume eventually it won't be there because, or I'm just obliterating them when they show up. <laughs> that could be true too. It could work both ways. I mean, it either feeds or it wants to be obliterated. Yes. Because I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't put that past anything. I mean, it, If you're an entity that always feeds, I mean, like someone who's asleep, I mean, you you probably genuinely want to be outside of that system, just like the agent in the Matrix. I mean, he's there and he has a role, but he hates where he's at. And if someone freed him from it, he'd take it in a heartbeat. Right. So... I mean, I don't disagree with that logic at all. And but there's there's so much um, there's so much mechanism there, and all of that is related around fear. But it got me thinking about like what if you apply that same mechanism to a different emotion. And so I'm going into a realm where I'm agnostic. I don't have any idea what I'm talking about here, but I think it's an interesting question. So instead of fear, like in Greek mythology, there's the lotus trap. I think I'm saying that right. It could be wrong. And you also have the example of the siren island. So the siren would be like the classic mermaids. So there used to be a tale that was told in... um pirate or sailing circles that there would be an island with mermaids or sirens and you wouldn't be able to escape that island as a ship because the same thing with sleep paralysis except desire so they would push out desire you would react to desire and then you wouldn't be able to escape their hold and then there's a lotus trap in um, greek mythology with the same concept but imagine like a system that answers your every desire as it comes up. So your wish is my command. And I mean, I'm we're not the first ones to talk about this or think about it, but how could you possibly escape a trap like that? It's depicted in um, Percy Jackson. Um, there's a movie and um, they depict it as a casino with, a, you know, like a bunch of beautiful girls and um, and drugs and good times and stuff. And you get in and the whole system just delivers your desire. So your whole being is just answered desire and which creates more desire. And it's just like the original sleep paralysis trap except it's just playing on a different emotion. 
But I'm saying like if one exists, why wouldn't other emotional traps like that exist? And then that's probably where this thing comes from in Greek mythology. Yeah. But that's interesting if you look at like the development and how quickly we develop stuff in terms of technology and how quickly everything's building around us, technology and and the technology around our attention. It's like, are we building a lotus trap? It sure seems like as far as that goes, we're going in a wrong direction. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. There's, it seems to be traps, escape mechanisms. I mean, you name it. It's, I mean, that's here as well. I mean, tech technology has a, a good force, but seeing a lot of negative things come to the forefront uh, that could, could be devastating to like consciousness. And I had got to the point with sleep paralysis too, that, curious that why I couldn't move is because like my soul wasn't back in my body yet. And I could like, it's just a matter of like you, every time it's happened to me, I wake up from sleep, like some type of deep sleep and I wake up scared and I can't move. And so what does that tell me? Like without my soul, I mean, it was like just a sitting deck duck, completely terrified. And then when it happens, you zap and then all of a sudden you can move again, but there's, there's a waiting period. Um, but that's just a complete theory. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. We're off in theory land for sure. But but even now, I mean, can you imagine like a scenario where like you could be scared again? Not not on the like it, not, not on the level of of um no, no, not that. It's almost like something where you wouldn't want to attempt um But there's there's one because if when you go into sleep paralysis and like if you look at it online, there's a lot of people who relate it to alien abduction. Hmm. And um, I th I think it's pretty clear, like in that sleep paralysis state, like you you're manifesting fear. I mean, that, that could take the form of anything. Like I already said, like I took it for me, it was demonic and it was also a wolf as I got more mature. Um, so I think like the object of that manifestation could be anything. So, I mean, that it doesn't necessarily have to be a form. It's just a manifestation of pure fear. But if you look at the people that are manifesting it in terms of alien abduction, that seems like even more of a trap where, and I, I just feel 
sympathy for him. I can't necessarily relate because I didn't manifest it that way, but I, it is, it does seem like another level. And it even seems like spiritual teachers like sad guru and stuff kind of have like this line when it comes to aliens where they, where they slow down and they kind of understand like not to push in that direction. Like Sadhguru is very interesting when he was on Rogan and in talking about aliens and like his reluctance. It seemed like he wanted to say a lot though, but he didn't, he did have a lot of reluctance. Um, And the new um, telescope is, it's going to have some pretty cool images on there for sure. Cause the Hubble was outdated and we've been waiting on this one for a while. Um, to deny alien life forms, um, in this universe is, is it just defies common sense at this point for what we can see. Um, as far as other dimensions though, this is where it gets really exciting talking about because again, we're, we're looking at things in terms of physicality. We're looking at things as far as what we know. So what we know is like, discovering how how long a light year is and once you understand how far a light year is and it takes like so many million years to go a light year and then you try to grasp that just the milky way is like an infinite time it would take just to go across our galaxy and then you push some more I don't know why, but it's past that. It's, it's, it's most everything in the Milky way is unreachable for us. And then you go universe and it's completely infinite, completely untouchable light years. So then you take my little pea brain of consciousness and we have to add in the level of, of other dimensions when we're talking about aliens because standard travel doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to us in this human form the way we are now physically here on earth as we're having an, an experience in an earth dome. But travel and visitations from aliens that people have described in other dimensions, although very hard to prove. And, you know, if, if, if I took, came to you tomorrow and said, Kane, I was in another dimension last night and I was abducted by aliens. I feel like it would be even hard for you to believe that. Not that. So it's not, it's not an easy, like when sad guru is going away from it, it has a lot of reluctance because even if you had the experience, it's almost like it's only for you because other dimensional experiences are so beyond logic of our human experience in earth. 
Like you can't even, you can go there somewhat in meditation and see things that, you know, possibly, you know, when I, when I used to sit, when I was a kid, I saw this a lot more. And I know a lot of people who had experiences as a kid, like you're so full of light and uh, that, that if you shut your eyes, you don't even know what you're doing, but I could almost what it looks like back then were wormholes and the discovery of wormholes and what travel may mean after death in different dimensions. So I, me understanding all that, I can't say that I wouldn't believe someone, but I also know if you were going to have an alien encounter, it has to be on another dimensional level. It's not in forms of regular travel. It's not like ET coming down because he traveled like, I'm not bought on that. I'm bought on something that's even more other dimensional. Cause it almost has to be, you have the, the, to travel in that way. It's not anything as far as our time space can accomplish. Yeah, I agree with all that. I think my, um, I think my curiosity since awakening and especially like um, having a different experience with sleep paralysis and not quite understanding what's going on there. I mean, the cats will react. I mean, that's almost where I'm clued in. And then I think I can see something that might be like in an elongated drop of water that's like swarming around with my eyes closed. So I, and it, but it's so funny because it's so small to me now. Um, and it was so big to me before and it meant even witnessing it. It's not, I mean, it doesn't invoke any fear, but that's where like my question with like how other people manifest that and, and my question is like, is there like another level of manifestation where there is a whole nother level of maybe like what you said, dimensional fear. And let me, I'll ask the question like this. So what if you took Jesus Christ at the, right before the crucifixion and you abducted Jesus by aliens And now he's on an alien planet in an alien crowd being crucified. I mean, is he able to say at that point, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do? Because he's not going to have a reference point to what he's dealing with. The reason why he was allowed to say that is because he came from humanity and he loved humanity. But when you're thrown into like that type of like multi-dimensional uncertainty, how, how would he be able to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? That's the biggest hypothetical I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Jesus was abducted <laughs> before he was crucified. How would he react to it? I mean, uh Let's see. I'm just, but, or to ask another, like, 
what would like fire in the sky or like one of these like major abduction stories like you 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 have the understanding like a, a reaction to this in terms of fear wouldn't do you any good your awakened self knows that but my question is is like how many levels is there and the reason you use Jesus is because it's just the ultimate example. Like if there was a way, then he would have figured it out. But I can't mechanically understand how he could look at like an alien crowd and have that same type of compassion because he wouldn't know. He wouldn't know what he's dealing with. It would just be a manifestation of form that he doesn't have any reference point for. Well, the, and how does that not inspire fear? In the context of what you're saying, you don't know that the crowd would want to crucify him in an alien. Well, that's true. So you're right. just, I mean, if you're saying that the crowd would want to crucify him, then I think Jesus would automatically know he's dealing with the same kind of people because they just want to kill him just because he's for no reason, basically. I mean, so right. you might go to, it, I mean, the alien, <laughs> the alien drive might have saved his life. They're like, hey, why do they want to kill you? Come over here, have some wine, have some supper. Right. Well, w- one of the, one of the hallmarks of like the alien stories is they seem to be very aware of the mind control system that we deal with. Yeah, that's apparent. And that's that's interesting because that that puts you in a very malicious state. I mean, that's that's a very powerful malicious state to like show up and understand that everything's in mind control. Like, I don't know, I don't even know how else to describe it other than, um, I'll give, I'll give you an example. There's this, um, there's this other podcast I listen to, uh, Mysterious Universe, great podcast. They, they go all into fun stuff like this, but they're, they're telling the story of, there's this sexual abuse story and kind of an awful story, but it's, uh, the father sexually abusing the stepdaughter mm-hmm. and it's he's just taking pictures of her and i think she's like around eight years old and when she tries to say what's going on in eight years old she's like there's this scary indian who shows up and his eyes keep popping out And he, you know, asked me to do all these things. And so she's telling this story and nobody can understand what this scary Indian is with her eyes popping out. And so like time goes on and finally the mom like realizes like a loose board in the wall or something and 
finds a shoebox in the in the wall and pulls the shoebox out and there's like an Indian headdress and then there's like one of those silly glasses where the eyes pop out. Mm-hmm. And so he was so far ahead of her that he presented himself in such a way that when she tried to communicate what was happening, it was so unbelievable to the people listening. But that was the way he created it. The reason that story, but that illustrates like the one who's ahead in terms of understanding the mind control is in such a position of power that how does that not invoke like a whole nother level of fear that we don't have to normally deal with here? I mean, I think you're describing a, what we, what we live in. I mean, what, what we live in is hell on earth and it's dog eat dog and anyone with an advantage is going to use that for their own selfish uh, fix and we have so many fixes and so many odd behavioral patterns here that just us having a show and talking about awakening I mean, you have to be pulled out of this hell uh, where we're at uh, just to see clearly and how all the mechanisms work um, it's just one example That's the only way I know how to put it into words. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. You kind of just... Um, as you spend time in, you know, a new awakened state, you do... Like, I listen to stuff, and you look back at stuff, and there's just sympathy for the world. I Almost like I'm looking back at the world. Like, how do they stand a chance in terms of... I mean, I go to the gas station and I'm putting gas in the car and there's like this commercial that cracks me up every time. It's like, it's a commercial for a big cookie and it's this big cookie in a wrapper. And it, they always say, you know, come on in and get your big cookie. You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, we're being bombarded all the time. And it's like, People go in and buy that big cookie. People go in and buy that cookie all the time. I mean, that's just one example. Yeah, if you start, especially advertisements, if you start looking at advertisements in that way, it does get really bizarre 
Uh, just, I mean, Coca-Cola is one of them. Always refreshing. Always. Like, yeah. Coca-Cola is one of the least refreshing things if it's hot outside. You go drink a Coke in 100-degree weather, and you're going to feel good for about 10 minutes. And then you might as well go park under a tree because you're going to crash because you just had like four ounces of compacted sugar. Yeah, and all you're going to want after that is just water. Give me water, water to wash that. Or down. another Coke. Yeah. <laughs> just so yeah. you don't make it even worse. So you're not tired anymore. Um, the level of uh, embryonic state that I don't, I don't know what other planets are like, but and I don't know if they're all designed this way. And maybe this is the grand design uh, that is the ultimate test. But some people don't have a chance, I feel like, um, in this place. Uh, I mean, there's places around the world where the culture is so strong that you can't ever have any type of truth um, because what happens to that person? I mean, the Middle East, they're, you know, they're trained in culture so hardcore against other religions that, you know, 10 year old boys are, have machine guns and, you know, strap on suicide vests at uh, you know as a teenager and and would die for for their culture or religions that they don't ever have a chance or i mean there's a good part of the population that never has a shot at hearing any truth and how how is that fair i mean i don't yeah i don't i don't, I don't understand the fairness sometimes and then i i I don't want, and I think Warren Buffett said it best. And Warren Buffett's a billionaire, so when he says something like this, I mean, it's so so down to earth that I, I mean, I can't even believe how down to earth this guy is. But he said, just being born in a country like America, you hit the ovarian lottery financially, but also in a different way. I mean, a lot of countries you can be born in and not be susceptible to the culture and able to dig your way out of that. But the fairness here in this place, if you're born in the wrong place, you don't have a shot, you know, and, and not to say that you don't have awakenings after you die. Um, or when you die or for the fact of, sympathy for a person that never had a shot what that kind of snap awakening is at death could be totally something on a level of beautiful i don't know i don't know what happens at that moment but but just me looking at it human human wise logically wise there's so much stuff unfair just about where you're born i was born in the culture here you were too but Breaking free of that is nothing compared to what someone would break free of. And there's been, I've seen some stories where people, you know, have migrated here or 
possibly escaped out of their countries. And those stories are so beautiful because those people are so grateful and they're so alive. They totally understand that they see culture for what it is in a different way that other people can't see it. Especially when it's so harsh and so cruel. But I've always had an issue with that inside too. Like you, you, you feel like why? Why was I born here? I mean, could have been born anywhere. Yeah, I do think you know the ease or the suffering of life and like the variation of that. I mean, I do take comfort now in the fact that that, I mean, if it's a quick lesson, like you said, like somebody young who's on the wrong path, that's not going to live a very long life. I mean, you just, you, you, we don't have the perspective to understand like what was necessary in that soul's journey. And I mean, and that could just be the thing that they need to offer that perspective to further their progression. It's just, we don't have that. We don't have that perspective. We don't, we don't know as we walk around and talk and, and have conversations, we don't know the Omega part of it. But the Omega part of it's there. And so it's almost as if like you would be, you know, pre-birth. And, you know, God is sitting there, you know, behind a desk and, you know, you're in line and it's your turn up in line. And it's like, all right, we got a level one. We got a level two. We got a level seven. That's going to be rough. (laughs) You know, we got a level 10 and. And you're sitting there and it's like, I haven't done my level 10 yet. (laughs) I mean, I I might need my level 10. And you take your level 10. (laughs) And it's all just some point of progression to understand yourself. But it, it just, it's a... I mean, I don't know if I do that just to make it easier to accept, you know, all the suffering in the world. But um, I think it's just like that perspective is, <clears throat> is key. And I, I, I don't know like who needs a lesson. I, I, I know you don't, but like if you're in Times Square and like you're on the sidewalk and you look around Like you have a very, that experience and what you're perceiving is kind of limited because you're surrounded by the lights, you're surrounded by the buildings, you're surrounded by the billboards, and you might not necessarily like understand where you're at. But if you take that same person and you don't make him any smarter, 
You don't give him any extra ability, but you just move him to the top of the Empire State Building. And now what he sees is like just the entire city of New York. His perspective, like he has a much better understanding of where he's at from that point of view. So it's not a matter of like intelligence or being smart or anything like that. It's just from where some people are sitting, they can just see more. Yeah. And as an observer and in this role as well with the consciousness, I know that within is that oneness. So there's also the validation that the things that we see are unjust are also the things that are unseen and unjust and the things that we see that appear to be unfair as well. Also through us are, yeah, that's, it's unfair. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're all connected to that, to that source of validation as well and by bearing witness it's almost like it's powerful yeah so it's not like we're looking up at ancient god syndrome it's as though the omnificent presence acknowledges if we see something with our own eyes that's unfair it's acknowledged yes that's unfair on a universe oneness level and almost given given the compassion or the the forgive them father they know not what they do or you know it's it's the jesus on the cross saying those words it's it's the uh, effect of culture that there's compassion for from the view of oneness there's compassion for that because in some parts of the world, it's completely unbreakable. It's completely unbreakable. You don't, there, there is no way to break out of the culture in some places around the earth, even to this day. It's better now. We're better, we're closer to a global awakening with all the different platforms we have now today. But uh, there's, there's that testament of, recognizing that some things are not escapable here. There's a lot of compassion yeah. for that. And it has to be recognized on a, on a universal level. Like the um, really impoverished, very desperate, type places i mean they would just literally be too busy to even think about escaping their ego i mean they would just be in complete survival mode right yeah and in those type of situations they could even be more present uh, other you know you're talking about impoverished there could be a lot of love there it could be a lot of presence other than when i think of like culture like the isis kid i think of the culture like he can't break um he can't ever see any type of truth because he can't break the 
the culture learning that's embedded in them. But impoverished nations, I can see on a really on a kind of a different level. Um, because when you are in survival mode, you're almost awake. Um, you're in, it is the only thing that you like the neck, but kind of, if, if, if we look at what we're supposed to do tribally or just on the most basic level, like we're, we're supposed to be, you know, obviously eating to live, not live to eat. So they're already in the proper function of what a human's supposed to do. So there is no embellishment. There is no, um, gluttony. It's, it's a completely natural order. Okay. I, I need to find dinner for tonight. Um, type survival. And, but it, I mean, it could be a lot worse than that as far as they're just not being any food to be had too. And you take it to a whole nother level. But even at that, yeah, I think, I think you're dealing with some almost pretty perfect people because they don't, they don't have time to get angry either. Like they, they're just living from moment to moment, you know, trying to find either water or food and, and what, what leads them to that. So it's not a, I think they're closer or already there. Yeah, and and then the um, the other side of that coin would be the ones in pure ego and excess and wealth. I mean, that's just a Jesus prophecy. I mean those those are the situations where it's hardest to find the kingdom of heaven, just because of the comfort which, level. Yeah, which makes you wonder, like, if you're back at the beginning again, sitting at God at the desk and he asks you like, do you want level seven or do you want level 10? Like, do we even know which one it would be like, which would be level 10, the impoverished or the, or the rich privilege? And that's a good question too. Is there both in there? So own... do these rich privileged people just keep living that life over and over a rich privilege because they haven't popped out of that lesson yet? <laughs> Uh, Ain't that a bit the longest the longest redo life ever <laughs> recorded. It's like Mark Cuban. It's over yeah. and over. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's so do you think there's more traps out there like emotional traps i mean if you have like the sleep paralysis fear trap are there other ones that we're just like in terms of like you and me not aware of like the sleep paralysis is such a great example of like an emotional trap i mean it's the literal like you can't move trap do you think there's other ones related to other emotions
I mean, the biggest one that comes to mind is anger. Yeah. I mean, those are... I feel like it's the number one multi-level trap of all to keep people asleep is anger tied to resentment, anger slash resentment. Because that's the whole anchor to being asleep is anger and resentment. That's like the anchor. There's so many traps. I mean, So is it more related to like the emotion? That's why fear would be like so paralyzing because that's just like the nature of fear. Like you have the little kid who's terrified and like can't yell out and is just. Yeah, you just manifested it so much until you can't move. Yeah. But then anger, because it's a different emotion, the trap is actually like setting the body in motion. In the head. Yes. Well, yeah, in the head and then eventually in in the body as well. I mean, to where you're in movement, you know, with the keyboard across the face. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's so many different triggers for anger. I mean, from... I mean, take your pick. I mean, I, I feel like I can see myself overreacting in situations a hundred times a day. You say, well, I could have been angry there, but I was not angry. I mean, there's just so many, so many different situations of, of people reacting. And I think the trap is that initial reaction that, that leads to emotion from um, and I've I've been seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter too. That's funny you brought this up because I was putting in this search bar. I think I texted you, and now it's now a famous line. Why am I so angry? So I typed yeah. in the search bar Twitter. Why am I so angry? And then I also typed um, a few other things like anxiety or depression. I kept doing it until Twitter sent me a, or they put, did a pop up and said, please call this number if you are, if you are <laughs> suicidal or whatever. And, and then I got to thinking about it. I was like, man, I may be like setting up a trap for myself. Like, am I being monitored by the government right now? Because my keywords are anxiety, depression. Um, why do why am I so angry? And that's, that's a pretty big. That's a pretty big key word, I would think, for people trying to fish out people that are unstable. But I was doing it on the totally opposite end of the spectrum because I was wanting to, and I think we got some traction from this, by the way, because I, on certain situations where I thought that they were on an emotional level and the anger had gotten to a point where it seemed like despair, you know, I would tweet the podcast out and, um, just leave it at that. It seemed like we got to jump, jump on it. But some of the things that you would, uh, traps, you know, people would talk about just, you know, sitting in, in the living room and someone like eating a bag of chips next to you. Like you can react to that and get angry inside. 
you know, like growing up, you know, we were brothers and you're eating cereal next to me and it, you can hear the sounds of the slurping and you can actually like get angry inside. You can actually react to that. Like you're like in the, like, and then you start talking to yourself and it perpetuates. And there's so many of those situations that are traps every minute of the, of the day. And by once you awaken and you, you see the reactions that would have happened and you just go about your business. One of the silliest ones, especially after you awaken and probably the most popular is road rage. And it's so frivolous because if you really, and, and I love a lot of spiritual teachers talk about road rage too, because it's one of the first thing you can recognize. It's so noticeable. Like you're in a car and, and you get angry and you react to the other cars and it's become a phenomenon. So, you know, talking about this is, it's a good topic because it's so prevalent. Like people get so angry in their car. And once you come to realize the reacting in the car, and it's almost like an outlet for some people, like they've been holding in reacting, like they couldn't react at their job. Or, you know, they can't react here, but damn it, I'm alone in my car. If someone cuts me off, I'm going to freaking flick them off and I'm going to get angry about it. Or if I get in a traffic jam, man, I I, I got to get, it's like the, almost a release and they're giving themselves permission to take the trap in the car because at least they're by themselves. And, um, but to discover like, a slow car in front of you making you angry because it's going to make you five minutes slower to your destination becomes like, wow, I cannot believe that that ever, I never saw that trap. I can't believe that I would never ever reacted to something like that because it, it, it too is the most, it's the biggest phenomenon, but after awakening, it's the biggest one that just falls off like completely because in the car is, is especially if you're by yourself, it's more of a time that uh, I can just be present. So I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not going to react to a traffic jam because it's just going to give me time to sit there and be more present, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's you're definitely um yeah, showing me I think I was caught because with fear it you know, it's such a paralysis, but the trap with anger is just it's so much more of like a motivating and like movement oriented oriented emotion. But it's just as much of a trap. And yeah, and then you could kind of just go through all of them and you could see how they would manifest as a trap. But that's why like something like desire looks so crazy. Like if like how could the human population wake up from a desire trap? Like it doesn't seem possible. And then it's like, well, how are we like full speed of head spool? I mean, so 
we have it as like a mythological danger and then we're full speed ahead trying to manifest it like literally in like collective form like if we pull that off nobody's waking up from that who's waking up from a desire trap i mean give me an example i don't what what would they be stuck in So a lot of it has to do with sexuality. A lot of it, I mean, um, if, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, like kind of like some of the matrix type stuff. I mean, if it gets so good and then the matrix is just delivering on your every desire. So like we talk about comfort and the comfort trap and stuff, it's like, if that elevates a little bit with technology. So you have people that are stuck there with pornography now, like just with the system that's available now, like there's entire like Reddit threads where people have just given up and given in completely to pornography and then feel like it's okay to talk to other people about it. And that's just with the system that's there now. Like if you elevate that system a little bit. And it's not just that because there's, I mean, you can imagine a system that'd be geared more to women as well. So just a system that doesn't ask any questions and just gives you what you desire. There seems like a progression there that there's a spot we wouldn't be able to come back from. Like as a group, as a whole. Yeah, as a progression. I see what you're saying. But I mean, as far as now, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> it hasn't progressed to like 24-7. So, I mean, you don't you don't really snap someone into awakening in the, in, in the height of desire. But things kind of naturally fall off outside of desire and awakening and realizations. And then, but I think you're describing kind of where technology is going and when, where there could be like complete no turning back. I mean, those, those are real possibilities and, and we definitely can see a pathway going there for sure. But now we have, you know, we're, we're even though people are asleep, eyes are still relatively open. Now you're talking about a world where like, like gone, no, no turning back from, from there. I think, and I think in certain situations, in certain places, it seems it sure as hell seems like we're going there with technology. And yeah. Cause it like, when we've talked about it in the past, like we've gotten there before. So just being matrix fans and the idea that like, if you take the matrix. Yeah. That's the definition and, of gone. Right. But in, in that system, it's like, how could anybody turn inward if there's no, nowhere to turn? If you're just a, if you're just a consciousness, how does anybody turn into the body? If there's no body, 
Like, so there's that level of it. But my new question is like, I didn't understand like the emotional trap that's there. I didn't understand like on the level of desire. It's like, Oh, if you were just like, that would be like the, I mean, I think that's why it's a mythological warning. It's if, if everything was given to you without question, just at your desire. Like, I don't understand how you get out of that. I don't understand how you could even start the process of, I mean, either like what working through pain or, you know, a rug pull. I mean, it looks, it looks like there's some traps that are just um, inescapable. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. It's almost like we're on the clock. I mean, from the awakened point of view, like you're on the clock, like the time is ticking. Not for us, not for us specifically, but just for the collective. Yeah, I I definitely can see that too, because the level of truth that's raising is out there. So the the fact that people not hearing it or not having access to discover, whether it be me or you, or I mean, if you're, if you're, say, take me 20 years ago, the, 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 the availability of what's out there was even less then. Now, I feel like the availability is through the roof. Take your pick, you know, talk to someone, start listening to someone um, that has seemed to have found a way out and start knocking on that door. And it's, it, it seems to be everywhere now. And I know, I know we're involved with and in, in are seeing a lot of, of people just because, you know, we're, we're related to them and we see them on, on Twitter and, but it sure seems to me that I I would even be in a completely different world. Even now, if I had the same kind of seeking heart 20 years ago, I feel like I'd have like so many options of discovering that door and pounding on it to, to escape out of, out of the hell that we're all in. Um, but, but that also is a double edged sword because it's made the, the ticking of the clock start to go because as the platforms get better, so do the platforms for distraction and desire and, they're all moving at the same speed, so to speak. Right. Like it's not stopping. But it's a good time just because of the fact that we, even, even if you, you can probably listen to this podcast probably in nearly almost every country. And that's pretty amazing. 
Yeah. Uh, because even if, you know, certain countries where they wouldn't technically be as free as, as this country, you know, there's, there's abilities to listen to people that are trying to go over borders to, to bring a message. And that's all podcasts. I mean, they give us the platform. We're just talking on it. So it's not, it's not like we have the ability to do it, but I mean, it took 20 or 30 minutes to get on every major podcast platform there is. It wasn't that difficult. And most everybody have either an Apple phone or an Android. So unless those phones are on lockdown, people pretty much can do as they please and listen to what they want to listen to. Um, so the choice is there, but I do understand the ticking of the clock as well because technology you, is not stopping. Yeah. I wonder too, is it, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine, but like try to imagine like your old self. And maybe, maybe it's, it's just a misunderstanding of the human. It's it's so hard to like put yourself in that hypothetical, but maybe, I mean, how many days in just desire bliss would you last? I mean, so you go through, you know, a week, you go through a month, you know, you go through six months and you go through a year and like that entire year was just the manifestation of your desire. I mean, maybe there is like a, you know, kind of like um, the Agent Smith monologue where he's talking about the first Matrix was designed to be a perfect world. I mean, maybe there is something that goes off in you and just starts to tingle and let you know that this isn't right. Or you're just a ball of reactions to your own desire. Maybe there is a path out of there that we're not. I mean, clearly lots would be stuck there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, maybe there is a path out of there. Yeah, there's got to be a sense of disconnectedness. Um, it's got to be a sense of suffering. Not necessarily in, in the desire or... Like I said... There's a devil's advocate for you. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've played a good devil's advocate tonight. It's been very impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> um. I mean, I'm optimistic to think that there's always a pathway out of there. Um, maybe I feel more than most people, but I mean, I've I've always felt suffering. I mean, I've been on both sides of the world. You know, desires and things fade. They're not 24 um, seven. You know that you're never in total escape all the time. So in times that I was, wasn't, I, I felt like something was lacking. I felt anxieties. I felt 
that I wasn't a whole person. I mean, there were things that were screaming at me. Um, so I knew that certain traits or desires or whatever you may call it. I, I knew, I knew that they weren't going to like fulfill anything on like a eternal level. That it was a more of a form form level. And Eckhart talks about, I think he talks about the subject beautifully. It's, it's in terms of form and non-form and he makes it so eloquent and how he talks about especially young people enjoying the form and he doesn't talk about it in terms of good or bad or or selfish desires or he just has a good way of putting it that enjoying the form is kind of a natural process and then becoming formless before you leave the body. Obviously that enjoyment of the form kind of falls off, so to speak to the level of like perversion and, 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 and things like that to where there's no longer a need for the desires of the form to carry on because the, the, the formless is now the goal. And he, the, the way he does it, and I think I'm explaining it right. Sounds right. doesn't make it a right or wrong issue. doesn't make it a, anything other than what it is. And, They're young people from the majority of the time they enjoy the form until the until the desires of the form run out and and then it's off to um more of a deeper level of wholeness and understanding yeah I'll play osho then because <laughs> um <laughs> Osho is his own devil's advocate. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, he, I really feel like a student in terms of like how to talk and how to have a conversation, but how to be like constantly provoking. And I, he is such a master. I mean, he's. Um, I I can feel him molding a lot of my spiritual process, especially when my process is like trying to send a message out. And like, there's not this clear path to, you know, pulling the pig, uh, pulling the pin or pulling the rug. I mean, it takes like provocation. It takes stirring. It takes, um, crazy hypotheticals it takes like he makes rules and states them clearly and then like breaks them in the next breath i'm and it's constant i mean he'll talk about judgment 
he cracked me up the other day. He was talking about judgment and then um and then he just breaks off and he, and he just goes off on Picasso. I cannot stand Picasso. He goes, "Meditate on Picasso for an hour. You'll probably puke." He just throws his ego on the canvas and he just goes off on Picasso. And then he sits there for a minute and he goes, meditate on the Taj Mahal for an hour and you'll know perfection. But it's, we're just talking about judgment and then he's throwing the judgments out and there's something about like the jarring nature of it. That, um, I mean, it's certainly like you were saying, totally. I mean, it's definitely a different style, but he's he's a very interesting spiritual legend in terms of provoking the ego. Yeah, coaxing it out. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I... I more power to that strategy. I mean, I love it. Um, I don't, I don't know what necessarily it's going to take for listeners, but I, I do know that hearing what they hear is, is provoking something at, at what level. I don't know. Um, and with me, it's just more of if it were me listening, I would say, well, I, I recognize these pe- where these guys are coming from. But you play that that role so well of trying to uh, come at it from all different directions, which is exactly the, the devil's advocate. But it's needed and it's unique for a program because yeah, you I I don't think I would listen to Eckhart Tolle now for an hour just because I don't necessarily need to. I might listen over five or ten minutes and then turn them off. So it's not like I just have to go listen to one man speak for an hour. I can understand the Osho thing just because it's so provocative. Um and I haven't gotten into his provocative. I haven't seen him with any interactions yet. I guess I haven't listened long enough. Um, but that's that's who I learned from. Very provocative spiritual teacher. And uh, I loved every minute of it. Because uh, there was a lot of provoking. Um, if you can imagine. Um yeah, it was a lot of provoking. He provoked a lot of stuff in me, especially as a 20-year-old. I mean, it's just puts you in a, your place in a, in a heartbeat, but also knew he was coming from a 100% place of love and 100% correct source that that I trusted. But, oh, did he have a hate hate club? Every every great one has a hate club, I swear. Yeah. The biggest hate clubs on that you'll ever see. 
and that <clears throat> I've hit on that too. Eckhart Tolle doesn't seem to have that, which is mind boggling. There's probably like some secret society that we don't know about and they hate Eckhart Tolle. They have like, <laughs> they have like rituals outside. They go camping and there's like hundreds of them, but nobody knows about them. It's called the world bank. Uh, <laughs> They have posters in the yeah. room and they use them as dartboards. Yeah. Yeah. If everybody was Eckhart Tolle, then it wouldn't be a whole lot of work getting done. It'd be bad for the economic system. Yeah. And that's what happens too. Well, I mean, the global awakening, you're looking at a global collapse of a lot of stuff. Um, I've thought about it many different times, but capitalism works in in a lot of ways. It doesn't work in a lot of ways as well. Um, It's one of those things where you don't want to get on one side or the other, but at the end of the day, they're all systems. And when you have a new earth, I don't know how those systems survive. Because that's all they are is is systems of governing and systems of control and systems of borders. And how does all that survive a, a new earth awakening? I don't, I don't know how it does. I don't either. It's going to take a lot to get to that point. lot of suffering on a grand scale to get to that point yeah we don't necessarily know if it hasn't happened many times over here as well yeah that's definitely an interesting thought do you think about the times that talking about how many times we have to run through our lives to condition ourselves and bring us to the point of the masterpieces of whatever we're trying to create and how many times we have to go through this cycle um, just based on how many years the planet's been here. I you've had to think that we've done this multiple times. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost because predicting the future and predicting the past is not necessarily a prophecy other than pretty much know what's going to happen next. Eventually pretty much all of us are going to die of something and the world's going to reset. We, we, I mean, that's pretty much a given. We all know it's coming. We all know that it's going to start probably pretty fresh and it's going to start pretty perfect. And then we also know it's going to get to the point of large egos and many different cultures and many different wars will be fought. So we know suffering's coming. Like we know the cycles just like you would know the cycles of weather. 
the Ice Age. And apparently we're heating up now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's not prophetic. It's just... Yeah, it's just like what we were talking about. Like, it's obviously building to something. And I mean, and you can, you know, look at the cup half empty or half full. I, I don't even know if it matters which way you go in terms of, like, what's better for everything. Yeah, it's just, it's like as inevitable as your own death. It's... Because, you know, you know, they talk about prophets in the Bible and a lot of people that, you know, they, they especially a lot of churchgoers, they say, well, I know what's going to happen next. You know, they prophesy this. I know I know about COVID-19. I knew that that World War Three is coming. I knew that this is coming like it's all in the Bible here, here, and here. Well, what I just said, though, like is like we look at those people in ancient almost like we look at like the ancient God syndrome, like the prophecy of the prophets. It's really just that guy was really awake and he could see what was coming. I mean, it's yeah. nothing more, nothing less. It's pretty easy to predict that there's probably going to be another famine worse than COVID-19 and it could take out half the population. Like that's going to happen eventually. We, it, right. It's pretty much, you can bank on it. Certain things happen over and over it's just the it's just kind of like the trees getting cut down in the forest. And there's a really good analogy too. The guy, um, it's inevitable because uh, I can't remember. I think it was the podcast that we just discovered. They were saying something to the lines of, "So if we just turned into the best humans ever and we cured cancer and disease and we got really good." There'd have to be another way. The, the global population couldn't handle that. Like, it 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 wouldn't handle that. We'd right. have to find a way to eradicate. So it's it's part of a necessary evolving. Just as though we manage forests in the woods. Like after a hundred years, we have to cut those trees down because there has to be fresh new ones for the soil. It's, right. it's a part of forest management. Right. So it's a part of inevitability. Like it, 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 it explain it as it's not, is it the greatest thing that we just become so awesome at curing everything that now we don't have room for all the people. I mean, that's, that's an issue because we're messing with, we're messing with natural order, so to speak. Or the dog eat dog, the strong survive. You're mess. You're messing with the program of the world. Like we're here to discover, awaken, and but but only the strong survive. Like it is sad, but there's a lot of weak people that end up dying, or this or that, or there's tragedy or or whatnot, but. There is a program that if you get to where you are fixed, all the viruses in the program, the program's not sustainable. Yeah, and it's 
it's from every direction too. I mean, this isn't necessarily devil's advocate, but there's a whole nother like de-civilization theory in terms of the replacement population. And I guess like that's taken like a dramatic hit that some people are becoming aware of now. And, you know, there's just places that require, you know, skilled people that know what they're doing. Like Denver is one of them, for example. It's a city a mile high in the air. Like they don't grow their food up there. Like everything has to get in there. It it snows like crazy during the winter. You need that stuff removed. So it's like if you had a certain break in some of those systems, like it's way more fragile than we think. And if we don't have the replacement population to like maintain a system like Denver, like the whole thing falls apart. And that's just one small area and they're all over the world. I mean, there's there's islands, I mean, and stuff that they don't grow their own food. Like everything is being shipped around and globalized. And it's like, if there's enough break in that system, it falls apart pretty quick. Yeah. I think Sadhguru said, if everyone started to eat organic foods tomorrow, that game over. Yeah. Not enough supply. Not enough supply yeah. for everyone to eat whole foods. If everyone decided to eat healthy tomorrow, not necessarily or organic, but just decided to eat what be because eighty percent of people in capitalism the, the rely on the processed food world. So all those people turn that off and no more Coca Cola sold and no more no more Cheetos right. eaten then it's game over. We wouldn't survive. We're we're based on a broken system. We're based on we're based on we hope people continue to make bad behavioral decisions when it comes to food or else we won't have enough food. That's a true <laughs> statement. You believe that? We're reliant yeah. on the bad behavior of people to eat yeah. healthy foods. That's bizarre. Yeah, it is. Signing off. I'm I'm yawning. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs>